Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for episode 4 of The Vodcast, the political news podcast for Gen Z by Gen Z. I'm Ryan Buck and I'm here with Virginia Gaffney and Grace Friedman. Hi guys. Hello. Grace, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, My name is Grace. I'm 16 years old, so a junior in high school, and I am on the team of Voters of Tomorrow in the Communications Department, and I'm also a member of the Illinois Youth Climate Movement. Love that. And Gaffney, would you like to give us a reminder of who you are? Sure, sure. Hello again, everybody. This is my second week in a row on the Vodcast. I am the National Director of Operations and Development for Voters of Tomorrow and the former state lead for the Texas Youth Climate Strike in the U.S. Youth Climate Strike Organization. Fantastic. And as always, if you want to learn more about Voters of Tomorrow and what we do, you can learn more at votersoftomorrow.org and follow us at Voters Tomorrow on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, as well as follow our podcast on anchor.fm slash voters-of-tomorrow or by searching Voters of Tomorrow on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. As we're leading up to this November's election, Voters of Tomorrow has moved to hosting a weekly theme on the podcast uh, relating to the Turnout Together pre-election campaign. Uh, Our theme for the week will relate to the theme of Turnout Together, where we are in the campaign. This week, we will be focusing on climate activism. As always, you can go to votersoftomorrow.org to check your voter registration, read the platforms for each candidate for president, and get any other information you may need on how to vote in November. Just go to votersoftomorrow.org and click on the prepare to link vote under the resources tab. All right, let's get into our first intro topic of the episode. We're going to be talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Do one of you want to get us started? Yeah, I'm going to try not to cry while talking about this. I'm just putting it out there. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like, what can you say? She's such an influential, one of my biggest role models. One of the reasons I became an activist in the first place. It's just so sad. And she fought for so long. She's been around for a long time. I mean, what I think it was 27 years she served as Supreme Court yeah. Justice, plus whatever she did before. Before that, she, she was a clerk a for the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And then she was appointed by Clinton, by Bill Clinton, in 93. Isn't that so incredible? Yeah. Was she it's a lifetime legacy. Was she born here? Did she immigrate here? She was born in Brooklyn. Uh, her parents actually were, well, her, her father was an immigrant and her mom was just barely born in the States. Women did not go to law, like barely any women in law school. And she got into Harvard Law with her husband. I think her husband was a year ahead of her. He was so supportive. And I think that's amazing. Was her first stepping stone, per se, becoming a lawyer or did she just go to law school? I, I mean, actually, I, I, I think we can all agree that she was a badass before she got into yes. Harvard. <laughs> oh, 100%. <laughs> I actually think she was a professor of gender studies or so a class cool. related to that. She had a hard time finding a firm because she was a woman and became a professor of a class somewhat related to gender studies and then took on a case about discrimination on the basis of sex. That's so incredible. She did so many things. So she was born in Brooklyn. She's a New Yorker, just like me. Uh, Her older sister died when she was very young. 
um, and her mother not long after that, uh, which was actually before Ginsburg graduated high school. So she went into college uh, having lost both a parent and a sibling. Uh, that was Cornell. She then married her husband. It's one marriage only forever, Martin Ginsburg, who was also in law school. She did become a mother before enrolling at Harvard. She's got two kids. They both have J names like her. She's Joan Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They are Jane and James. I think that's really cute. She transferred to Columbia Law School, where she actually graduated tied for valedictorian, which is insane. Uh, following law school, she was a professor at Rutgers and Columbia. Sometimes I'm just astounded at how many things people can do, but also not take a break. Ruth Ginsburg just hustled and hustled and hustled. Everything she did, she had to fight for. Literally. Can you imagine getting into law school as a woman? And like, she was only the second woman to even serve on the Supreme Court. And it's 2020. That is insane to me. That is the uh, consequence of lifetime appointments instead of a mandatory retirement age. It, it meant that we came down to this point where she was holding on to every breath she had because she understood the historical implications of her okay. death. And yeah, let's I, talk about I do this. personally wish that she had opted for a elective retirement during Obama's time in office so that she could have passed on the torch. But at that time, you know, we're, we're talking about five to 10 years ago, she had to make the decision that she was coming to the end of her life. How do you ask a person who's fought as hard as she has to decide that their life has come to an end? I know it's absolutely one of the hardest things to think about. The fact that she truly believes she had to hold on until the end of this presidency really says something because I saw lots of tweets, lots of posts last night that how wrong is it that people really believe that our democracy was on the back of an 87-year-old woman dying of cancer? I know. And and we all saw, I'm sure, people talking about how Roe v. Wade is in jeopardy, but that's not the only thing that is in jeopardy. Obergefell v. Hodges, Olmstead, these things that we don't want to see go away because they're so monumental in our lifetime, they're at risk now. They're in jeopardy in the last few weeks of possibly the most controversial presidency we will ever see in our lifetime. There's the risk that even Buck v. Bell could be more codified into law. I want to talk about the Congress, the Senate, the Republican senators, because there's four that need to flip. Am I correct? In order yes, for them not. Yes, and four have flipped. However, that does rely on the party line of every Democrat also either refusing to vote or voting no. So I know that Murkowski, Collins, Gasly, and his Romney committed to not voting. I believe so, but that may be because of his position as a candidate. Technically, and I want to talk about Lindsey Graham for a second, because in October of 2018, he said that if an opening comes in the last year of Trump's term, they will wait till the next election. So I kind of want to see how that plays out, because I have a hard time believing that Lindsey Graham is going to want to wait until the next presidency to vote in a new candidate or to appoint a new judge. If they did appoint a new judge, I don't even think that would be good for them in the long run, unless they can definitely get someone that is on their side, which we've seen them do a couple times. When Scalia died at the end of Obama's 2016, 2012 to 2016 term, they said it's too close to the election to appoint someone else. Gonna read the room real quick. Were there some, there were some tweets last night, I believe. Mitch McConnell, especially. 
in his statement on the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It started off saying condolences, and then it went into talking about the Republican Congress and how he wants to replace her before there's a new president while Trump is still in office. I have Mitch McConnell's statement here. And it starts about how Justin Ginsburg overcame personal challenges and professional barriers and sending his condolences. And it's a political statement. It's a nice gesture of condolences. And then it talks about in the last midterm election before Scalia's death in 2016, Americans elected a Republican Senate majority because they wanted to check and balance in the last days of a lame duck president's second term. They said that they kept their promise. They confirmed an opposite party. At the end of his statement, it says that President Trump's nominee will receive a vote on the floor of the United States Senate. Hypocrisy at its finest, like usual. Some of her final words on her deathbed were that it was her wish not to be replaced until the next president was in office. And on the night that she died, hours after she died, Mitch McConnell goes out and says that he will vote on a new justice while Trump is still in office. It could have been political if he had waited maybe a couple days, you know, a week, (laughs) maybe like that would be fantastic. Um, But it's the fact that, as you said, he only did it a few hours after her death and while everyone's mourning and praising her for her past accomplishments while she was on this earth. Like, it's just bad taste. It's horrible timing. Really just disgusting. And I completely agree with you. I don't respect him as a person at all. And I already don't respect his politics. Mitch McConnell, karma is a bitch. My only hope is that the reason they're behaving this way, rushing to confirm someone before the election, is because they know Trump doesn't stand a chance. I can only hope that this is indicative of how they feel about this election. Like, this is going to be their last chance, because if they don't get it in under the wire, then there is no wire to be under anymore. Trump will not see four more years. I have to hope that their behavior is indicative of their projection of this election. Going back off what Gaffney said about like his legacy if he loses the election. Your presidency only does so much. He's already had two appointees to the Supreme Court. That is their whole lifetimes of influence that he had on this country. There's four years versus the judges that you appoint for a lifetime. And if he is able to appoint a new judge, that flips the Supreme Court for how many years to come. Okay, so let's explain why this isn't normal, because I feel like there's controllable circumstances and uncontrollable circumstances. And unfortunately, in this situation, the uncontrollable circumstances landed right in the Trump admin's lap to where they could take advantage of this situation, which is really unfortunate. Scalia passed and he was replaced by Neil Gorsuch. And then in uh, 2018, uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy retired And that is when Kavanaugh was confirmed. Did you guys see Kamala Harris's statement on Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Because I think that the first line is indicative of her entire legacy. It says, tonight we mourn, we honor, and we pray for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her family. Tomorrow we fight for her legacy. And I think that's just like an amazing way to honor her. That is really an amazing way to honor her. I mean, it makes sense. Kamala Harris takes after her a lot, I'm sure. And I'm sure she was an icon for her as well and an idol, as she is for many people and you. 
All right, moving on to our next topic, we're going to be talking about the TikTok and WeChat ban. Okay, so... This is a way that Trump is going to lose some of the younger vote. I can tell you that. Okay, let, let me start. Let's start at the beginning of yeah. this situation. Let's start at the at the root. Yes. Okay. Originally, when he was holding his Tulsa rally, and there was a bunch of controversy around that because we are still in a height with COVID, which we still are. So I guess it's really no different now. But. Yeah. We, you know, it, COVID is a thing. And he was hosting this huge rally. Somebody on TikTok, multiple people on TikTok, spread around information that you could sign up for Trump's Tulsa rally, get two free tickets. You All you have to do is give them your email and your name and like say There was no cap on the event. However, there was a cap on how many people they could fit inside. When people from TikTok found these videos and started to sign up for this Trump Tulsa rally, their numbers without started skyrocketing. Without any inclination of going. Yeah. Yes, without any inclination of going. These people were doing it just to get the tickets, take up a seat, make the numbers look bigger than they are in hopes of destroying Trump's large, large ego. Boy, did it work. Yeah, too. so it worked because at the Tulsa rally, I believe the final count was 6,300 people showed up. Yeah, and I have there were the one numbers point- here. Okay, I think there were 1.2 million tickets, but correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yes, so the administration accounts for a certain number of tickets that aren't going to be taken. So the administration believed that there would be 19,000 inside the arena and tens of thousands more in an outdoor overflow area where they put up a stage where Trump could address the overflow audience. In actuality, (laughs) huge stage. In actuality, about 6,200 people showed up. They had to take down the overflow stage because the stadium wasn't full. The there huge were reports stage. of the huge stage outside because no one had to wait outside. <laughs> and Trump was reportedly screaming at his aides backstage because he saw the mass of empty blue seats in the audience. Looking at the different news channels from that day and how they show the arena is so interesting to me because Fox News kept the camera on him to the back straight angle the entire time because that was the only area that they could have like a full look to. And if you look closely, they still spread out the people. So there's still like a seat in between the different groups of people. He got butthurt from that, I guess. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He got upset and got his feelings hurt and i think we definitely knocked down his ego a couple pegs absolutely this whole situation is absolutely ridiculous that this presidency is so controversial that a group of teenagers on a social media app were able to knock our president down a peg like what does that say about politics right now literally and so he he got back to the white house he's on air force one he gets off mm-hmm. that comes down the stairs tie undone looking defeated walking Disheveled, slowly defeated. Yeah. nobody next to him like he's just like that was the first and only time i think we have seen trump look and present himself as completely embarrassed and defeated of course he has to retaliate because trump that's who he is 
The Tulsa rally was in mid-June. And I believe a month after that, there were talks about banning TikTok. Yes. Uh, So on August 6th, an executive order by Trump in which he argued that TikTok and WeChat, which is another app, collect data from American users that could be accessed by the Chinese government. So that was on August 6th. And somehow he's getting that from this company called Byte owning TikTok. Mm -hmm. What he fails to realize and where a huge obstacle for him was is the fact that TikTok is based in Los Angeles. There is Byte and they provide multiple TikTok-like apps to different countries. So our TikTok is not going to look the same as somebody in China and how their TikTok look. It'll look completely different. It'll be called something different, but it's still on the same server. So that's the issue. The information that TikTok in America collects is housed in Los Angeles and somewhere in like Montana, I believe, something like that, (laughs) like servers in Montana. And they don't leave those servers. So they've been kind of going on a whim here. And he announced Another probably half a month, month so month or so later, Grace, you can let us know. He is putting a time limit on how long TikTok has to sell their app. So he's forcing their hand. They have to sell their app to an American company, quote unquote, because these companies also hire help outside of the United yeah. States and have servers outside of the United States um, to buy TikTok. So somebody has to buy. They denied all of the bids except for Oracle. And this mm-hmm. was released. When was the Oracle bid released? So I have a bit of a timeline here. Okay, so go ahead. Clear it up. It, for was, it was yesterday, which was the 18th or the 17th Trump announced this whole plan. TikTok will be off the App Store, Google Store tomorrow, Sunday, September 20th. It won't be available for new downloads or new updates. What's going to happen now is that the app WeChat is going to be basically completely ineffective starting tomorrow. Won't work. Won't be able to use it. But TikTok will just not be able to update anymore. So if you have the app, you'll still be able to use it. There's not going to be any updates or new downloads. Now, the same ban that is on WeChat, the same restrictions that WeChat has, which is basically ineffective, will go into effect for TikTok on November 12th, unless the company can convince the Trump administration's concerns that it doesn't pose a threat to U.S. national security. TikTok is currently in talks to do a deal with the American software maker, Oracle. The Commerce Department said that the ban could be lifted if TikTok resolves the administration's national security concerns by November 12th. Oracle was kind of their only option. I mean, they didn't really choose Oracle. Their company's bid was the only one that was approved. Trump does have some ties to Oracle. The founders, owners of Oracle heavily praised Trump and have donated to his campaign this year and last election cycle. There is that connection there and that is a little bit sketchy because TikTok did release a $1 billion creator fund. Like that's just for the creators. So they have some serious capital behind them. It's a huge app. It's worth a bunch of money. The minute that Oracle signs that deal and it goes into effect, their stock is going to skyrocket and they're going to have a whole new revenue stream that's most likely bigger than the already existing revenue stream that they have from their company. What do you think is going to change about TikTok if Oracle buys it? Do you think that liberal creators 
creators are going to be the word shadow ban. Their content won't show up. Oh, 100%. I mean, that already happens. So Mm -hmm. I can definitely see it happening on a larger scale. The company that currently owns TikTok has already released a statement saying if they do sell TikTok, it's not going to be with the algorithm that we know now. It's going to be up to Oracle to host an algorithm, which is the entire reason that TikTok is so big. Information can spread on that app literally in an hour. Like something majorly important can spread on that app. 30 minutes to an hour, guarantee you, it has millions of views and millions of people Oh, yeah. Anyone can go viral in a second. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think TikTok has provided many, many opportunities for minority creators as well, especially in the LGBTQ community and the Black community. I love to see how they really uplift their creators as opposed to somebody like YouTube who kind of, you can't really grow on YouTube anymore. It's so crowded and they kind of just praise the top influencers and keep those top influencers at the top as well as give them opportunities and not so much smaller creators. I'm just going to say it. It's nice to not see TikTok influencers. They're not all thin white women who, you know, get a following because of how they look. That's great. If you can do that, that is fantastic. And you should absolutely take advantage of that. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying it's refreshing to see different people in a community. And there's just so many communities on TikTok. It's Amazing. It can really be considered a a microcosm or a parallel to the American dream. This notion that you can come up from nowhere, from nothing, if you put in the if you put in the time, if you give yourself to this dedication, that you can become the next great American celebrity uh, just by your participation in this project that then goes out well beyond your reach through natural growth and natural spiral and organic finding of your community and of your people and of your following. Literally coming up, you know, by your bootstraps on this app. The notion that anyone can go viral is very much parallel to the way we consider our economic growth in this country. I love that analogy because that's so true. We were just talking about the American dream and how Gen Gen Z is going to define it when we're adults. And that really makes me think. For so long, we've considered your economic contribution to society to be parallel to your worth. We've considered your ability to generate money and to spend that money to be your value. Through apps like this, we are no longer requiring our generation to be bound by this notion of economic value being social value. When you can become a celebrity on a practically free app on a practically free basis and you can have this rapid fire organic growth where we're no longer intrinsically tying your wealth to your significance. And that is something that can be considered revolutionary in the United States, though not necessarily the world. But this is a this is a rapid change for our country. Now we have people who are becoming famous exclusively for the arts, exclusively for entertainment purposes with no monetary connection. There is no money being accrued from this celebrity unless you become a mega influencer and you do find sponsors. But that's not the primary goal. When people go out to create TikToks, they aren't going out to become millionaires. They aren't going out to be building empires and retire at the ripe old age of 20. They're going out there to create entertaining content and to entertain others. 
I literally could not have said that any better. Yeah, that was perfect. For our next topic, we will be getting into the Trump and Biden town hall. Comparing, contrasting, all that good stuff. Do one of you want to start us off? In general, if you're not looking at the political things they said, if you're not looking at their political ideology, I I really think Biden was able to connect with the people at his town hall. I think that he was empathetic and came across as knowledgeable and really acted presidential. And Gaffney? Uh, There is something to be said for the fact that Trump did finally have some measure of social distancing and safety protocol in this town hall. Uh, We just talked about Tulsa. Fortunately, that event wasn't uh, big enough that they came to a point where they (laughs) needed to enforce social distancing. (laughs) But there is something to be said for this event finally following procedure. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just a huge difference in them and in their bases anyways so of course the vibe was completely different i am Mm -hmm. glad to see that trump is finally implementing some of these newer things i mean okay this kind of goes with the whole theme of the whole 13 billion dollars to puerto rico thing right after um trying to trade greenland for them it's just too late i mean puerto rico still needs help we should have been helping them consistently anyways and i'm glad that he did that because people are going to actually get help and FEMA's back on the board which is fantastic i think it's just too little too late honestly with all this stuff and he's just pissing off the wrong people while still trying to come up with kind of bipartisan issues that he can solve to try to get a bigger audience and him social distancing was really nothing more than that it's him trying to appeal to a a more moderate yeah i mean it's him trying to appeal to a more moderate base and it shouldn't be political but it just is i think we all just have to accept that this is political and that it is what it is what it is is reflective of an intersectional issue this is the intersection of politics and science when you have his base who has been so along the party line outright against social distancing and against health measures, you have to think about why and think about the news that they're absorbing and why the media that they're absorbing influences this behavior. Quick question, um, back to our first topic. Did Trump ever release a statement about Yeah, he did. I truly did not even think that he would release one. I think that, again... It was a political move. Like I, if he, I didn't want to say it, but yeah, I think it is. If he did not release a statement about Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying, that would have lost him votes right there. So back um, to the town hall. Yeah, um, so let's compare and contrast a little bit. Okay. Okay, so the vibe at Biden's town hall was more of a... Or, okay, so you guys can let me know your opinions on it, but mm-hmm. I'll just kind of say in short terms what I think. It seemed like a very mellow, drama-free, and genuine town hall. I agree with you. It was very genuine. Biden really absorbed the stories of his questioners. He really came across as empathetic. For instance, a man told a story. He works in a cancer center, doesn't even earn $15 an hour, and he told this whole story. And Biden, while he was listening, was making eye contact, looking down, shaking his head. He looked genuinely upset, genuinely empathetic for this man, had a conversation with him. And I think that in itself is presidential. I think that shows that he can empathize with his voters. 
Okay, now Trump. I want to talk about the first question of the night came from a diabetic man who said that he voted for Trump in 2016. He liked his handling of what of the pandemic until May 1st. And you know that people with underlying conditions are more susceptible to coronavirus. So this man, as a diabetic, said that he had to dodge people not wearing masks, and he was genuinely scared. In his words, Trump took his foot off the gas after May 1st. And Trump responded to him. He Yikes. Didn't, yeah. And Trump responded to him, and he didn't make that emotional connection. He said, well, we really didn't, Paul. We've worked very hard on the pandemic. We've worked very hard. It came off from China. They should never let it happen, unquote. He deflected the blame again to China instead of actually listening to this man's question and responding to it in a personal he way. He should have taken accountability. Like, that's just what you do at a town hall. You take accountability. You make it personal, like you're saying. The point of a town hall is really to connect with your constituents. Your constituents are there asking you questions as opposed to a moderator asking questions so that you can debate with another candidate. All right, y'all, before we get into our main topic for this episode, we just wanted to thank you all again for taking the time to listen to the VODcast. We really do appreciate it. Without people like you supporting us every day, we would not be able to do what we're doing. We're here to make sure that Gen Z knows what's going on in the political world and is able to make the most informed and educated decisions possible. Gen Z has the chance to change the political landscape forever, and it all starts with turning out to vote. To learn more about how to register to vote, who the candidates are, or any other information you may need, please visit our website at votersoftomorrow.org. Also, if you are able, we would greatly appreciate any amount that you can donate, literally any amount. We rely on donations from people like each one of you to believe in what we're doing and to be able to reach the largest amount of Gen Z as possible. We are setting a $1,600 goal by the end of September, and we literally only need $470 more. If we don't reach our goal, we won't be able to keep doing what we're doing, and we would seriously appreciate any bit that you can donate. If you can please consider donating, just go to vote votersoftomorrow.org and click the donate button in the top right of the website. It's super easy to do. Now, let's get into the main topic. For our main topic today, we are talking climate change. Climate change. That is a big one. I say it every podcast, but there is a lot to unpack with this one. And I mean yes. a lot. Let's start talking about environmental racism. So if you are anywhere in climate activism, you have probably heard about This is Zero Hour, Jamie Margolin's climate action organization. This organization, Zero Hour, has a program that they run called Getting to the Roots of Climate Change. And part of the Getting to the Roots is this issue of environmental racism and why communities of color are disproportionately burdened with health hazards through the policies and practices that force them to live in proximity to sources of toxic waste. As a result, these communities suffer greater rates of health problems relating to these hazardous pollutants. And the argument can be made that this is not, in fact, because of direct, you know, outright you know what? I'll just say malintent. The argument can be made that this is not due to outright malintent by community zoning boards and organizations who make these decisions about where people can live, but because when they 
start doing these zoning things, people from more wealthy neighborhoods, from uh, more predominantly white neighborhoods will go out and they will argue that their neighborhood is not the place to put these facilities, these pollution producing power yeah. stations. Whereas communities that are more impoverished, communities that are primarily people of color are not going to have the resources to spend the time to go down to City Hall and argue that their neighborhood isn't the place. They don't mm -hmm. have the social wealth to make this decision go the way that they need it to go. They don't have that mm -hmm. power in their community to say that their opinion is one that needs to be respected by zoning boards. I want to throw in some statistics for you guys so you can see how big this problem truly is. Hispanic Americans are exposed to 63% more pollution than they produce. And Black Americans are exposed to 56% more pollution than they produce. While White Americans are exposed to 17% less pollution than they produce. Which means that basically communities of color are disproportionately burdened with these health hazards. It's redlining. Post-World War II, suburbs started popping up across the United States. And at that point, we saw the change from the very distinct urban versus rural way of life now into the suburban where you were still close to the city you still had all of those resources but maybe you weren't necessarily having to pay city taxes anymore you had the benefits of being outside of the city less noise less pollution like we just talked about facing environmental pollution as a result of where you live and that is exactly what redlining is is when you are on a certain side of the line you are more likely to have these pollution producing plants in your community when you had the private developers who started building suburbs in the 50s you saw they wanted to specifically serve a certain type of american they wanted to serve certain people and they knew exactly who those people were and you know exactly who those people are it's white people they wanted white them people to, they wanted them to achieve the american dream of two and a half children and a white picket fence and a yard and a golden retriever where it's not okay to have a coal plant where it's not okay to have an oil derrick and that is what created the ideal of a suburb is, is that these are the areas that are safe from having those things and they are priced because they are safe from having those things. And also, oh, by the way, it just so happens to be on the segregated side. I don't know what to tell you, man. It just happened that way. Living in the suburbs of Chicago, I have friends that live in the south side of Chicago that are disproportionately affected by oil companies that come and want to build their factories there as opposed to the suburbs that are 20 minutes out of Chicago that are predominantly white versus the south side of Chicago that has what the government calls low-income housing and is predominantly people of color. All they had to do was lay down the lines. They had to establish these borders. It created these microcosm communities where it becomes a, a channel in itself with restricted access to resources. Then you, you pretty much have to stay in your bubble. And when the jobs in your bubble are only of a certain type and they only make certain wages, then you can't access certain other resources that are further away from you. Okay, so that is the more social side of climate change and everything having to do with that. Now we're going to get into the more climate-focused issues that are coming from climate change, such as the West Coast fires. So let's talk about that. The West Coast fires are currently happening in California, Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. It's relatively normal to see some summer fires in 
California. Obviously, there are anomalies, but this is not normal. This is, in my opinion, global warming. It's climate change. (laughs) It is climate change. And these fires, we saw at the beginning of this year, the fires in Australia. Every year, these summer fires continually get worse. This year, during these fires right now, the air quality on the West Coast is worse than it has ever been recorded. And for and, a, a pandemic going around right now that affects your your respiratory system, having bad air quality is really detrimental. That It could be the end of somebody's life. We need to work on climate change as a whole rather than countries working on it individually because this proves that a fire could happen on our West Coast and reach our east coast how much further is it going to go how many pollutants are coming from other countries and reaching us like we're just consistently and constantly contributing to this issue in basically every way possible you know it kind of makes me wonder did we make a branding mistake in calling our planet mother earth are we experiencing mass misogyny here that that we're not giving her the (laughs) respect she deserves i mean this is this is ridiculous we have no respect for for our mother earth and now you know the bitch is back to haunt us and she's absolutely justified in it how can we yeah how can we pretend that this is anything other than environmental destruction with a sexist root and you know we all we all made the mistake here we forget that hell hath no fury like a woman and scorned and we have scorned her she is vengeful she is she is out for us and we deserve it how did we arrive at this intersection of issues here all week i've been talking about how these are intersectional issues these are issues that come from more than one direction and we arrive at this point where everything is getting layered on top of each other just like covid now the the fires are more greatly impacting people who already have lung damage from this virus. Now they're going to be more hurt by it. We've got people who were already experiencing social difficulties are now being more affected by climate change, where we have wealthy people who are able to afford escaping the effects of climate change. They can continually move. They continually pay increased energy rates to cool down their homes or to heat their homes in the winter. They can continually replace their belongings that are destroyed in these disasters other communities cannot do that because historically they not they have not been able to accrue the wealth necessary the actual tangible monetary wealth necessary to afford these damages these changes that they are creating like we just talked about white americans are exposed to 17% less of the popul- of the pollution than they produce and that mm-hmm. means that these other communities are having to eat their pollution literally they are having to shoulder the burden of that pollution and they will shoulder the expense too i just want to point out that there are so many issues that we have in america but climate change is a global issue it affects every single person on this earth whether you believe in it whether you like it or not climate change affects every single person on this earth so there is absolutely no reason why we shouldn't have a plan of attack for it there is if your president doesn't believe in science yes trump left the paris climate accord but even so countries aren't pushing to reach the standards of the Paris Climate Accord, and that's the issue. World leaders don't see climate change as such a pressing issue that it is. The whole thing that 
I believe about climate change is all the other issues that world leaders are trying to solve right now will be void if we do not solve climate change because literally we'll be dead. like we're dead. There's no reason Jeff Bezos can't buy like a few windmills and put them around the earth. Like, you know what I mean? He yeah. can do that. <laughs> it is an expensive task. You know, fixing climate change is going to be, or I shouldn't say fixing, supplementing climate change isn't going to be a cheap, easy task, but it's necessary. And we created the issue, so we have to solve it. And if we don't solve it, we're going to die. If people like Jeff Bezos and other billionaires around the world, even a tiny bit, were like, do you know what, guys? This is an issue. We're going to buy some solar panels and put them on our factories. Even that would bring awareness. Even that would help to convince world leaders that this is an issue. Because at this point in, in the world right now, world leaders listen to rich people. 100%. Like that's just what happens. So if the rich people say this is an issue, we need to fix this, then it'll happen. This is going to affect us. And we can't do anything about it. We need you to do something about it. We now have more visible and obvious signs of climate change that we're interacting with. Like this is only the second time in history that we've had to go into the Greek alphabet in order to name hurricanes. And the first time was in 2005. That makes twice in our lifetime that we've had record setting hurricanes. And we know that weather is directly indicative of the greater climate. So our generation is being more confronted by the obvious signs of climate change, whereas earlier generations only saw underlying signs and it really took scientific interpretation to understand what was happening. In direct contrast to Jeff Bezos, however, we have Charles Feeney, who became a billionaire uh, through Duty Free Shoppers, which was a, an airport chain, and he really didn't want to have all of that money and not do anything with it. He understood the importance of getting rid of your wealth before you die. He is now 89 years old, and he has fulfilled this dream of giving away his wealth. He is no longer a billionaire. He is, quote-unquote, broke. Uh, he did this by making massive donations to the causes that are that are important to him, which included uh, ending the death penalty in the United States, uh, supporting the Affordable Care Act. Uh, he made a contribution to his university. Charles Feeney is hopefully what other billionaires will become. They have this opportunity to go down in history for something other than merely their wealth. And this is a precedent that I hope that they follow. So there have been 13 named hurricanes formed before September. And if you don't, if you don't really follow hurricanes, if you don't really know what's going on, that is a lot. That is a crazy amount of hurricanes. And this is partly due to exceptionally warm ocean water, which is due in part to climate change. And this is driving the record activity. And circling back to the effects of climate change and environmental racism, even the impacts of the recent hurricanes have disproportionately harmed poor communities, black communities, and communities of color. These communities in the U.S. contribute the least to the emissions that cause climate change, but they suffer the most because of the systemic inequalities that keep their incomes low, that make these neighborhoods vulnerable to flooding, and limit the access to medical care. It is worth discussing what exactly it is that makes these communities more susceptible to damage, and that is uh, quality of buildings based on their cost. 
We talk about in Texas how the 1900 hurricane in Galveston was among the most destructive we've ever seen, largely because the buildings in Galveston weren't putting up a fight. When a hurricane made landfall, there was no building code that was requiring these buildings to be able to put up with anything. And now we have hurricanes making landfall in areas with communities that are still facing these these building codes and this quality of construction that is not able to withstand this weight. They have to be built more affordably so that people can afford to live in them. And that is where these issues compound and intersect. I'm really glad we talked about it, though, because I feel like for a lot of people, climate change is a surface level topic. It, they com- they basically compare it to what they see every day and not the other systematic parts of mm-hmm. environmentalism. They're not being affected enough yet. Climate mm-hmm. change is still just a minor inconvenience for them. We're, we're not really digging into their wallets enough for them to care about this yet. We're, yeah. we're at the washing machine breaking down level of climate change for these people. We're, we're at the headlight has <laughs> gone out level of climate change for these people. We need to, yeah. we need to start getting to the like, Engine failure. Loss of homes before they're willing (laughs) to actually confront this as a legitimate issue. Alrighty, everyone. Well, that is going to be the end of Vodcast episode number four. Thank you all so much for joining us. If you have any feedback or would like to learn more about Voters of Tomorrow, you can find us at votersoftomorrow.org and follow us at Voters Tomorrow on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, as well as follow our podcast at anchor.fm slash voters dash of dash tomorrow. You can also search Voters of Tomorrow on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you listen to your podcast. This has been another episode of Votcast, the political news podcast for Gen Z by Gen Z. I'm Ryan Buck. I'm Virginia Gaffney. And I'm Grace Friedman. And we will will see see you you next week. week.